0: A quick warning before we begin. This episode will contain the names of people and places that are entirely fictional, which I'm sure to mispronounce often. I hope you'll find it in your heart to forgive me. Enjoy the show.
1: Between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. When Shining Kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure.
0: Everybody, Looks like we got us a new episode of Hither Came Conan. I'm Steven, and I'll be your host for this little foray into the world of the titular barbarian. And yeah, I did say that I was going to give you a month before I released this one, but darn it, I was just way too excited not to get this one done and get it out there for you. So yeah, maybe these will come out every two weeks, or maybe I'll just you know, play it by ear. We'll see. For those of you just joining us because after all, every episode is somebody's first episode. This is a show where I read one of Robert E. Howard's original Conan stories, then I try and find the various comic book adaptations, read those as well, and then talk about them. Last episode, we looked at The Frost Giant's Daughter, which though it wasn't published first, it did feature Conan's earliest adventure. So this time, we're going to look at The Phoenix on the Sword, which features a Conan much later in life, and in fact, he is the king of Aquilonia. It was first published in Weird Tales magazine in December of 1932, and it's actually the very first Conan story to be published. It may have not been the first Conan story that Robert E. Howard wrote, but it was definitely the first one that was published. And It's actually a rewrite of a rejected Cole story called By This Axe, I Rule. So he'd written this story for Cole. Uh, You may recognize him from the Marvel comics, Cole the Conqueror. They even made a movie that wasn't very good and had Kevin Sorbo in the role. And in fact, the movie was loosely based on This Axe, I Rule. Uh, The story I've never read, the, the, the Cole story, though... I did find an ebook out on the Kindle that has a lot of the Cole Robert E Howard Cole stories and this is included. I just I haven't picked it up yet, but I do plan on it. So, let me give you a synopsis of the story, the original story, the Robert E Howard story, and then we'll talk about the adaptations and which ones I liked best and uh talk a bit more about the story and all that good stuff. So, this synopsis originally comes from Wikipedia though. I rewrote it quite heavily so it would make a little bit more sense the the synopsis that was out there wasn't great i mean it wasn't bad it just it wasn't great it didn't really follow the order in which things happened in the in the story and not that i don't you know not that i think i did any better but eh, let me just give you the synopsis
1: Into the boat.
0: as the story opens we meet a group of men they are traitors to the crown of Aquilonia. Among them are Grommel, the commander of Aquilonia's Black Legion, and Rinaldo, a poet and minstrel. The men have gathered to plot the murder of the king, a red-handed barbarian from the north named Conan.
1: Oh, hi, Conan. How are you?
0: He is a Sumerian who took the crown after strangling the old king, Numidides. Now, Numedides was a tyrant, who had been hated by his people, but memories are short and it isn't long, thanks to Ronaldo and his songs, that the Aquilonians, who originally welcomed Conan as their liberator, have turned against him due to his foreign Sumerian blood. The men have hired a southern outlaw and once count of Aquilonia, Ascalante, to help and plan this little rebellion. And Ascalante has brought with him his slave, Thoth-Amon, who was, at one time, a very powerful wizard from Stygia. The plan, once the barbarian king has been slain, is to hand the crown over to one of royal blood, in this case, Dion, the Baron of Attalus. What the men don't know, however, is that Ascalante plans to take the crown for himself. Once the meeting has ended and the traitors have disbanded to wait until the moment is right to strike... Ascalante sends Thoth-Amon to watch over Dion, whom Ascalante considers a fool and a coward. Thoth-Amon, once alone with Dion, warns the Count of Ascalante's plans to murder Dion and take the crown once Conan is gone. The slave tells Dion that he had once been a powerful sorcerer. He was feared and hated by the other Stygian sorcerers because he could summon demons to do his bidding thanks to a mystical ring a ring that had been stolen from him. Since then, he was forced to flee Stygia to stay alive and was eventually captured and enslaved by Ascalante. Furthermore, if Thothamon were to murder Ascalante, something he desperately wants to do, plans would be put into motion that would reveal Thothamon's identity and location to the dark sorcerers of Stygia, who wouldn't delay in finding and killing Thothamon
1: luck to kill a wizard
0: his story causes dion who you know wasn't really listening to remember that he had a good luck charm a ring that he was sold by a shemite who claimed to have stolen it from a southern wizard sure enough it is thothamon's long lost ring the sorcerer turned slave seizes the ring kills dion and then wastes no time in using its power to call up a demon the creature its outline not unlike that of a gigantic baboon, though no such baboon ever walked the earth, is then sent forth to kill Ascalante and all who are with him. Meanwhile, Conan dreams of meeting the long-dead sage Epimetrius, who warns Conan of the evil that has been loosed in Aquilonia by a disciple of the evil god Set. And so he carves the symbol of a phoenix onto Conan's sword so that Conan can use it to defeat the evil. Conan wakes in his chamber to find that he's clutching the sword and discovers the phoenix on the blade. Before he can think about the dream that was not a dream, however, he hears furtive movement outside his bedchamber and, being a seasoned warrior, begins to pull on his armor. The traitors then burst into Conan's chamber to find, quote, Not a naked man roused, dazed, and unarmed out of sleep to be butchered like a sheep. But a barbarian wide awake and at bay, partly armored with his long sword in hand. The battle begins, and Conan brings his sword down upon the helmeted head of Grommel, killing the man but shattering his sword blade in the process. Conan then snatches an ancient axe from off the wall and succeeds in killing many of his assailants. The king, however, is wounded and is about to fall under the knife of Ascalante when the demon arrives, killing Ascalante. Conan attacks, but his axe merely glances off of the beast's head, not even scratching it. It's as they grapple that Conan reaches out in desperation and finds the broken sword. He stabs the creature with it, and the demon dies. So this is not a very long tale, and uh, while I haven't read many of the Robert E. Howard Conan stories at this point, maybe five, maybe six. This one is actually my favorite so far. It's got some wonderful lines in it, like, uh, rush in and die, dogs. I was a man before I was a king, which is something he says to the men when they burst through his door. Because as they, as they come through his door, like, like the, the synopsis said, they expected to find him kind of you know waking up and, hey, what's going on, guys? What's all the noise? But instead, they find him standing there with a sword in hand. Some of his armor is on, and he's ready to throw down. And that's when uh, he says, rush in and die, dogs. I was a man before I was a king, which I love that line. There's also another one. Poets always hate those in power. That's a that's a funny line. Uh, but there are two paragraphs in this book that were my favorite by far, and I had to write them down because I just... I loved the, the language, the flow, the way uh, Robert E. Howard wrote these two paragraphs and the way they depict the battle within this bedchamber between Conan and this group of traitors uh, goes, With his back to the wall, he faced the closing ring for a flashing instant, then leaped into the thick of them. He was no defensive fighter. Even in the teeth of overwhelming odds, he always carried the war to the enemy, Any other man would have died there, and Conan himself did not hope to survive, but he did ferociously wish to inflict as much damage as he could before he fell. His barbaric soul was ablaze, and the chants of old heroes were singing in his ears. As he sprang from the wall, his axe dropped an outlaw with a severed shoulder, and the terrible backhand returned crushed the skull of another. Swords whined venomously about him, but death passed him by breathless margins. The Cimmerian moved in, a blur of blinding speed. He was like a tiger among baboons as he leaped, sidestepped, and spun, offering an ever-moving target while his axe wove a shining wheel of death about him. <laughs> you know, his axe wove a shining wheel of death about him. That is just great stuff. That is great, great stuff. Great stuff, huh? A couple of things I want to point out about this story before we move on to the comic adaptations. First off, there's a minstrel and a poet involved in this plot to kill the king. His name is Rinaldo. We mentioned that in the synopsis. Conan does not want to kill Rinaldo. There's there's actually a moment near the beginning of the story where Conan is is hanging out with I don't remember the guy's name. He is like the captain of the guard or his his right-hand man basically. And as part of this plot, Ascalante is able to increase the well he he escalates the confrontations that are coming from the picts a uh, a savage tribe from near aquilonia and he's also able to involve some other nation i believe but anyway it's it's to cause conan's right hand man and much of the army to leave the city and as and i for some reason i can't remember his name but as this guy is getting ready to go he's He's in this outside area with Conan and they're talking and Conan's actually working on a map. You know, they they say a lot in this story that he is he's a barbarian and a savage. But based on what little we learn about Conan in this story, he's a pretty smart guy. He's making a freaking map. He talks about how the maps within the palace or within the kingdom are really good at depicting Aquilonia and many of the nations to the south. but those from the north, like Samaria and Vanir, and and I don't remember the other one off the top of my head. Anyway, they don't do a very good job of of having those on the map. And you learn that it's because a lot of folks in Aquilonia just assume that everything north of Sameria are myth and legend. But Conan, he kind of hints that he's been there. He knows the people. He actually really likes the people. And they're a, they're all warriors like the Sumerians, but whereas the Sumerians are grim and dour for living in a gray, dark land, the 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 Acer and the Vanir are generally happy people who smile and drink and carouse and have fun. And this this guy that's hanging out with Conan kind of points out, well, then you're more like them than you are your your fellow Sumerians. Every Sumerian I've ever met has been. Grim and dour, and and you'd never catch one of them singing a song unless it was a war chant. And we also learn that Conan is a big fan of poetry and music because the subject of Ronaldo is brought up. Because Conan's kind of lamenting on the fact he's kind of like you know I've come in and I helped liberate this kingdom from this tyrant king Numidides or is it Numidides? I don't remember now. Come on, Stephen. Doesn't matter. And the people loved him for this right? He was part of some force that was brought in to to liberate Aquilonia and somehow found himself in the throne room. And he's the one that ended up killing the king. And so he took the crown for himself and he's been a good king. But Rinaldo has been out there singing songs, which paints Conan in a very bad light and places the old king on a pedestal and makes him seem godlike and so the people of Aquilonia begin to start hating Conan and they even build or they they put up a statue of the old king in the temple to Mitra who apparently is their god and so Conan's basically kind of complaining about this you know he's like ah these people i you know i i liberated their nation and now they're they're grumbling about me and the, the, the guy that he's hanging with is like, well, that's because of Ronaldo. He's out there singing them songs. You should hang that dude. And Conan's like, no, I'm not going to hang him. I like him. You know, I like his music and blah, 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 blah. Conan's into the arts. He is a warrior. He is a barbarian. He can be very savage at times, which we see near the end of the story when he literally takes out a dozen men who try to kill him, all with a, a, an old, dull, rusty Battle axe that he pulls off the wall, but I just find that interesting because then when the 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 rebels or the traitors burst into his room to try to kill him, Ronaldo is among them. And at one point, as Ronaldo and Conan are face to face, and Ronaldo's got a knife, and Conan tells him, "I'm giving you a chance now, leave," because I really don't want to kill you. And the guy ignores him and attacks Conan, and still Conan is is. I think the only point during the battle where he is fighting defensively because he doesn't want to kill Ronaldo. it would make him very sad, but then Ronaldo stabs him and Conan's just like, well, you're going down, buddy, and and kills him, but he's not happy about it. And I really like that part of the story. I liked the way Conan is depicted here. And I find it super interesting that this is the first Conan story ever published. And I try to imagine reading this. Having never met this character before, unfortunately, that's very hard to do because Conan's been not a big part, but a small part of my life since the early 80s when I first saw Conan the Destroyer over and over and over again on HBO. And then I'm pretty sure they put it on TNT and I watched it over and over and over on TNT. I wore that movie out. That that, that was one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. And it was a number of years before I saw Conan the Barbarian. So the the conan the destroyer is is my was my introduction into conan and then i would get the occasional conan comic and all that but trying to imagine being introduced to conan in this story it's again it's hard to do but it's really it's a really interesting exercise because i try to think about what we learn about conan in this story and try to ignore everything else that i already sort of kind of know about conan i'm not again i'm not I think I mentioned it in the previous episode. I'm not a Conan expert. That's kind of the point of me reading through all these stories is to, to learn more about the character, because I've always had an infatuation with the character ever since seeing Conan the Destroyer as a kid. But I don't know. I just find it super interesting because, for example, you watch Conan the Destroyer, and by the end of it, it mentions that eventually Conan becomes a king. You watch Conan the Barbarian. Of course, most people watched Conan the Barbarian before Conan the Destroyer. And it too, by the end of it, mentions Conan as a king. But Conan the Barbarian, of course, tells Conan's story chronologically. We we meet Conan as a child and then see him grow up and he then becomes a thief. And that's sort of how they do it in the comics as well. I mean, the first, when you when you crack open the Marvel comics, the Conan Marvel comics one of the first stories or the first story that they adapt from Robert E. Howard is the Frost Giant's Daughter. And heck, that was in issue 16 of the Conan the Barbarian comic. And I think it actually appeared, I don't remember now because I'm sure I talked about it in the last episode. It originally appeared in the black and white Conan magazine that Marvel was publishing, Savage Sword of Conan, or I think there were two different ones at some point, but. When these comic book companies, both of them, when they started their runs on Conan and they chose the first Robert E. Howard story to adapt, it was the Frost Giant's daughter because that is the earliest tale about conan it's It's Conan at you know eighteen nineteen years old, probably, and that's the way I grew up with Conan that his stories were always told linear. they started when he was just coming out of Samaria, and he went north and fought with the Iceeer against uh, the Vanir and killed the the Frost Giants and all that. And then eventually, you would start getting the Conan the King or King Conan comics. And so you would, you knew that eventually he would become king. But knowing now that the very first Conan story ever published is him as a king and then Pretty much everything else since then is all prequel material, ultimately, because I'm not 100% sure, but from what I understand, The Phoenix on the Sword, as far as the stories that Robert E. Howard wrote, The Phoenix on the Sword is the final Conan story as far as if you're looking at Conan's life uh, in a linear fashion. So I just, I don't know, I find that incredibly interesting. It blew my freaking mind when I learned that. Hither came Conan will return after these messages. And now back to Hither came Conan. So, there are two adaptations, two comic book adaptations to this story. First one was from Marvel Comics. It was one issue, Conan the Barbarian Annual number no. 2 from June 22nd of 1976 it had a cover price of 50 cents. It was written by Roy Thomas, pencils by John Buscema, the inks by Young Montano, and the letters by James R. Novak. This adaptation is as loyal to the original story as it can be for a book that's about 48 pages of comic. Now, again, the actual story isn't that long, so putting it into 48 pages of a comic isn't, that big of a stretch they didn't leave a lot out so it is very loyal to to the original story Uh, now i read this through the conan the barbarian epic collection the original marvel years of once and future kings which collects issues 60 through 71 and annuals two and three of the conan the barbarian comic and it was published by marvel comics in march of 2022 the second adaptation is from Dark Horse. It was a four issue limited series which ran from january uh january twenty fifth to april twenty fifth of twenty twelve. Each issue carried a cover price of three dollars and fifty cents. It was written by Timothy Truman. The art was by Tomas Giarello, the colorist Jose Villarubia, and featured covers by Andrew Robinson. This is probably the more loyal to the original story adaptation if only because they were able to fit pretty much everything in. I don't know that there's a lot that they left out since they were able to do it in four issues. And the story itself is five chapters and that's kind of the, the the four the four issues kind of I think they combined two of the chapters into one of the issues, but because of that, I think the 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 dark horse version Read a lot better because it did feel like you were reading the various chapters, just like with the book or the story. I mean, uh now this was published, or at least i I read this through another epic collection from Marvel. It's King Conan Chronicles' Epic Collection Phantoms and Phoenixes. This collects uh a bunch of the Dark horror stories, Conan and the Midnight God, one through five from two thousand and seven, King Conan, the Scarlet Citadel, one through four from two thousand and eleven. King Conan, The Phoenix on the Sword from 2012, Conan, The Phantoms of the Black Coast, one through five from 2012, and then materials from The Age of Conan, Hyborian Adventures. This was published by Marvel Comics in September of 2022. Now, before I get into which one I liked best, I will say that I bought these digitally. Anytime there was an epic collection sale on Comixology before it, you know, Amazon. It was after Amazon bought them, but but before Amazon Amazoned comicsology, they would do uh these epic collection sales every once in a while. And every time they would, I would pick up some Conan Epic Collections. And I believe I have them all now. And I'm really glad because now that Marvel no longer owns the license, I don't know who does. I don't know who's gonna publish Conan stories next, or if anybody is, other than Ablaze. And they do the Conan stories under the title The Sumerian. But now that Marvel no longer owns the license, you it, you you can't seem to find the digital versions of these books. You can still find the the physical versions because there is, of course, a surplus of those. But with digital, once the publisher no longer has the license to sell those books, that just that just they just shut that off. So I'm glad I picked those up when I did. I remember thinking my God, how many of these are there? And these are going to keep me busy for years and years and years. Why should I buy this now? Like, you know, one of the last ones. Why should I buy this now when I have seven of them that I haven't even read yet? And I'm really glad I made that decision. Because, you know, they were like four bucks each for these giant epic collections. Granted, they're digital, but that's how some of those sales on Comixology were. All right. So of the two adaptations, the Dark Horse one is my favorite, uh, mainly because it was the closest to the original story which again is one of my is is probably my single favorite of the Robert E. Howard stories so far again I haven't read them all maybe 5 or 6 uh but the one thing they do change in the dark horse version is there's this framing device throughout the four issues where Conan or king conan it's a it's a much much older conan who has long gray hair and a long gray beard but he's still very fit <laughs> he's he's like a He's like an old man you don't want to mess with. But he's telling the story of the phoenix on the sword. He's 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 relating that tale to a guy named Pramus, who is a scribe, who has made these appointments with Conan to, I guess, record his life. And this is where Conan is telling him one of those stories. Now, my only nitpick, really, because both of these adaptations were very well done. You know, the Marvel one was... From 1976, that's always something you need to keep in mind when you're reading the Marvel adaptations. They're, you know, they're 70s comics. They're a bit corny. They're, they're, they look a certain way. And when it came to the look of the various characters, such as Ascalante and Thothamon, they look completely different than the ones depicted in the Dark Horse versions. But the Dark Horse versions were more true to what little description you were given about these characters in the original story, which is another reason why the Dark Horse version is, is my favorite of the two. And then the one, of course, that puts it over the top is the art by Tomas Giorello. At first, I was not a big fan of the art, especially with the coloring. There's a lot of scenes there at the beginning where the characters are colored with the exact same color scheme as the backgrounds, and they they tend to kind of fade into the background, but the the more I read, there are just some 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 wonderful, wonderful scenes and artwork and panels in these four issues. there's in the original story, when Conan meets Epimetrius, it's basically a dream that's not a dream. he's 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 asleep and he's mystically taken to this this place where uh, Epimetrius fifteen hundred years ago was buried where his tomb is and it's a really it's really a very short scene it's maybe two paragraphs it's really short but the way they do it in the dark horse version there's like a moment in the scene where epimetrius is basically telling conan that he has been the foe of the evil god set for his entire life and his life uh lasted three times that of a normal person and as he's talking about that there's just these wonderful depictions of him battling this serpent god and one is is him wrestling with this giant snake and it is beautiful and then of course the battle with conan and the 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 traitors the assassins is just some great stuff to look at very violent very bloody you don't see that in the marvel adaptation because they had to adhere to the comics code authority at the time but the the Dark Horse adaptation in 2012, they didn't have to worry about all that crap. So it's pretty darn bloody. But my only nitpick is when, to get back to that, when Thoth Amon calls forth this demon in the story. The Robert E. Howard story specifically mentions that Thoth Amon never faces the demon. He keeps his back to him the entire time. And when he calls forth this demon, he actually pulls... Ascalante's sandal, uh, uh, one of his sandals from his robes. He has had a moment at some point in the past where he stole a discarded sandal from Ascalante and kept it in hopes that he could use it in some fashion against Ascalante. And boy, that sure paid off in this story. But when he calls the demon, he keeps his back to it. Like he, Like he won't face it, he doesn't want to look at it. And while it's not stated at all in the story the the implication that i get is that either he doesn't want to face such a horror or possibly you know if you really want to read a lot into it maybe there is a uh, a thing mystically where if the demon makes eye contact with you that the demon can rest itself from your grasp and turn on you but they they specifically state that he he keeps his back to this baboon like demon while in both of the adaptations, he 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 faces it and looks it in the eyes and hands it the sandal and all this stuff. But the uh the only really the only other thing now that I now that I'm thinking about it, when he when he sends the demon off, he you know, he gives it the sandal and he's like, This belongs to Ascalante. I want you to find him and and kill him and all who are with him, in both of the adaptations, when he says, and all that are with him, they treat it as if it is kind of an afterthought. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull up the story right now, the original story, because you can get it on Wikisource. It's available to read for free on Wikisource. I'll, I'll try to remember to put the note or to put the link in the show notes. But it's chapter three, where Thothamon calls forth the demon. There was a movement in the air about him, such a swirl as is made in water when some creature rises to the surface. A nameless Freezing wind blew on him briefly, as if from an open door. Thoth felt a presence at his back, but he did not look about. He kept his eyes fixed on the moonlit space of marble, on which a tenuous shadow hovered. As he continued his whispered incantations, the shadow grew in size and clarity, until it stood out distinct and horrific. Its outline was not unlike that of a giant baboon, but no such baboon ever walked the earth, not even in Stygia. Still, Thoth did not look, but drawing from his girdle a sandal of his master, always carried in the dim hope that he might be able to put it to such use, he cast it behind him. Know it well, slave of the ring, he exclaimed. Find him who wore it and destroy him. Look into his eyes and blast his soul before you tear out his throat. Kill him, I!" in a blind burst of passion. And all with him. And yeah, I'm not going to read the last two. Uh, paragraphs, but then the demon sets off to go find and kill Ascalante. But in the two comic book adaptations, that part, the and all with him is treated almost as an afterthought. Like he tells the creature, go kill him, look into his eyes, blast his soul before you tear out his throat, kill him. The creature runs away to, to go do it. And as it's running, he's like, oh yeah, and all with him. Like, like as if to say that, you know, the fact that Conan then has to battle this, this demon is only beat through the whim of Thoth Amon. Had he not decided to say that at the last minute, then the demon would have killed Ascalante and then left, and Conan wouldn't have to have fought him. And I don't know. I thought that was, I mean, I, I, it's not that I don't like that choice. I just find it weird that both adaptations did that. Beyond that, um, the last thing I want to talk about is Thoth Amon himself, whom the longest time i always read that as tothamon i guess i ignored that h there in, in in the first part of his name but this is of course Thothamon's first appearance obviously uh considering that it's the first conan story published and while robert e howard apparently ba- based on what i could find he apparently mentions the wizard in other stories uh in robert e howard's stories he and Conan never actually meet, and that's what's kind of neat about this story as well. I mean, in the end, the ultimate bad guy, the ultimate big bad, is Thothamon. He's not trying to kill Conan. That's not the point of what he's trying to do. He's just getting his power back. You know, I think I put on Twitter when I when I posted one of the covers during my um, 500 comic goal hashtag thing. I said uh, for that issue, Thothamon gets his groove back, and that's that's kind of the point of his story. I mean, in the end, this isn't just Conan's story. It's it's almost more Thothamon's story than Conan's, because he started out as a as a powerful wizard before he appears in this story. Now he's a, a slave and he's able to get his power back and kill his master and then apparently escapes into the night. But the fact that he and Conan never meet really isn't that big of a deal if this is the only story you've ever read. But if you are more familiar especially with the marvel comics then you probably know his name because again while he and conan never meet in robert e howard's stories which basically means that thothamon from what i understand i i take that as meaning he never really becomes a uh, a major character for robert e howard in any any of the rest of his stories but after robert e howard dies and other authors start telling conan stories Uh, Thothamon is put into those and he ends up becoming basically Conan's Lex Luthor, especially when it comes to the Marvel comics of the seventies and eighties, where he had no less than 37 appearances. So there's just a, a, a number of things about this story that I find just, well, I'll say it again, super interesting because I'm not a very creative person. I'm delegating creativity to creative professionals, but you know, like, wait a minute his first story he's a king what what the flip is that about oh thothamon is this well of course i know him he's the bad guy from the comics wait he never actually faces conan it's 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 just really cool i really uh, again my favorite of the robert e howard stories so far i still have a number of them left to go and uh that was the uh phoenix on the sword if you have any comments you want to make if you want to pipe in on what you thought of the story you can shoot me an email over at Stephen or else at gmail.com. I probably will eventually create a, an email address specifically for Hither Came Conan, but I haven't done that yet. Same thing with a YouTube channel. You know, I don't want to go through the effort. Oh my gosh, it's so hard to create an email address and a YouTube channel if they're not really ever going to be used. I did put because I know that a number of my listeners of the other podcasts do use YouTube as their podcatcher. Even though it's a video service, smart genius podcasters like me will do audio versions of videos, which just means you usually take a static image. And so if you're looking at the video, you're just looking at, you know, typically the podcast cover art. So there's no actual movement, but you can listen to the podcast that way. And in this day and age, you can pull that up on your phone, stick your headphones in and go for a jog. You don't have to watch it. That's kind of the point. And of course, the nice thing about YouTube that I wish all these other podcatchers would do is that you can, as the owner of the YouTube channel, you can take these episodes and place them into different playlists. So for example, over on my Just Another Fanboy YouTube channel, I have like a Madman playlist. So if you want to go in and just listen to only my Madman issues or Madman episodes, you'd go to that playlist. So knowing that I did put this episode on YouTube over at the Stephen or else channel. And if I find that, um, folks are watching it or listening to it, then I probably will eventually start its own YouTube channel, but good Lord, we're only two episodes in. I don't want to get too deep into things and then something happens. And I, you know, I can't do the podcast after a few episodes that that's not my plan. I don't plan for that to happen, but you know, shit happens, right? Anyway, That was Phoenix on the Sword. Let me know what you thought. Everybody out. Next up is the Scarlet Citadel, which is not one of the five or six stories I've read before. And as of the time I'm recording this, it was adapted by the Marvel Comics magazine Savage Sword of Conan in issue number 30 from April of 1978. And it was also adapted in the four-issue miniseries King Conan the Scarlet Citadel from Dark Horse Comics that ran from February to May of 2011. And I'll I'll add real quick that I was also lucky enough to pick up uh, three of the Savage Sword of Conan omnibuses that Marvel released not that long ago when when they had the license of Conan. I got those for just a few bucks each as well over on Amazon. So I got all this stuff. I'm so happy. But yeah, will the third episode come out in a month? Will it come out in two weeks? I don't know. But get out there and start reading. The nice thing about podcasts is if you're not done reading with the story and I release the episode, you don't have to listen to it right away, right? Stick it in your queue. Once you're done reading the stories, you can come back and listen to it. Or you can do like I do with a lot of other shows. I don't always read the books. I listen to the, the episodes, and that teaches me what I need to know about the issues and the stories and all that stuff. So whatever you want to do, you're going to do. Until then, folks, my name is Stephen, and this has been Hither Came Conan. Talk to you later. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Hither Came Conan. Questions and comments can be directed to feedback at hithercameconan.com or come join us on social media. Just look for at Conan Podcast on Twitter and Blue Sky and at Hither Came Conan on Instagram, Threads, and Facebook. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the show over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Donations to the show can be made at donate.hithercameconan.com or become a member of the Super Secret Steven Society and get episodes early and ad-free. Join now using the link in the show notes or go to secretsociety.hithercameconan.com Memberships start at just a dollar a month.
1: Many wars and feuds did Conan fight. Honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time, he became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told. I just don't think I can move through life knowing that a guy named
0: Stephen did this to me. How could you let this happen, Stephen? Enough talk!